Some of you probably remember this story. A couple of years ago, um, you could read about it online. There was a man in the Ukraine, is at the Kiev Zoo, who, um, who lowered himself into the lion enclosure on a rope. Perhaps you remember reading about this. Ukrainian TV channel NTN broadcast uh, afterwards interviews with witnesses who said they heard the man saying that he believed God would not allow the lions to hurt him. His name was not Daniel, and he was wrong. They killed him. Can you imagine? Last Sunday, we traveled with Jesus into the desert in Matthew chapter 4, where he had been led by the Spirit to be, as Matthew 4 states, tempted by the devil. That is the same devil that Peter describes in his first letter as a roaring lion who prowls around seeking someone to devour. And because that is the case, Peter tells his readers that they need to be self-controlled and alert. And then he says this, resist him, resist the prowling lion, resist the devil, standing firm in the faith, standing firm in the faith. You know, in the original language, the word for faith is also the word for believe. The idea of standing firm is, is obviously to have strength. As God's people, we need to stand strong in uh, resisting the lion. But what Peter is not saying in that text is that, that we will resist the devil with the strength of our belief. How many of us have heard that challenge before in our lives? You just have to have enough faith. You simply need to believe more. No. Peter's not talking about a quantity of faith when he says to resist him standing firm in the faith. He's talking about content. He's not saying to believe a little harder, just believe a little more. No. What he's saying is stand firm upon what you believe. Stand firm on the truth of your faith which is about God and his strength and his character, his amazing love, his grace, his faithfulness to you, no matter what you face. It's not a matter of the enemy leaving us alone if we believe hard enough. The enemy is defeated in his attempt to devour us when we cling to the content of our belief. Standing firm in the faith. And we saw this last Sunday when we journeyed with Jesus into the desert where he would be tested. And you remember we saw that fine line between testing and temptation. It's the same word in the original language. And, and so often it comes down to the context as well as our response to hardship and trials. You remember the first test that Jesus faced? had to do with his treatment as a son. Remember the devil's taunt to him. If you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. And we learned that the if you are the son of God was not, it was not a question of, of Jesus' identity. 
He was not suggesting that, that Jesus doubt his status as the son. Jesus knew perfectly well who he was. There was no doubt about that. And the devil likely knew that there was no getting Jesus to question that. But I do think, I do think that the, the intent was to get Jesus, remember, to doubt the goodness and the character of his father in caring about his physical needs in his human form. And I suggested to you last Sunday that, that one of the areas that we will be tempted, relentlessly tempted, is when we face testings and trials that have to do with our physical needs and the material needs that we have. Our Father will, will test us with things like disease and things like suffering, things like financial and material needs of, of some kind. Why? In order to mold us, to shape us, to grow us, to mature us. And when that happens... Listen for the whispering voice. Listen for the voice that says to you, if God were really good, you wouldn't be facing this. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. What kind of a father is he to allow his children to experience these kinds of things. And, and that's the point, my friends, that's the point when, when the test becomes a temptation. And the temptation, James tells us, will, will lead us to sin when we give in to doubting the character of our Father and His love for us. Standing firm in the faith during those times, is to remember as Jesus did what the Scripture teaches. And the Scripture clearly states that, that God disciplines, God allows and orchestrates the difficult challenges and the hard times in the lives of His kids because He loves them. And discipline often takes the form of, of testing and hard times and sufferings. And so this morning we need to look at the second and the third tests that, that Jesus faced when he was in the desert. And I've chosen as our text this morning, James chapter 1, uh, probably a, a familiar text to us. There are a couple of truths in this text that I think directly apply uh, to the two remaining tests that Jesus faced. So let's stand together and let's read from James chapter 1, shall we? <clears throat> All right, here we go. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded 
and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Blessed are those who persevere under trial, because when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. My brothers and my sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. You ready to ask your neighbor a question? Here it is. James says, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. Here's the question. Was James on drugs when he wrote that? Go ahead. Ask your neighbor what they think. All right. What do you think? Rick Baldacci, tell us what you think. <laughs> All right. What else? Andrew. I think we mistake. Okay, okay, maybe a subtle distinction, but the idea is that there is a spirit of thanks within us in the hard times. That's that's what James is driving at. RJ. Boy, there's a perspective. Yeah. There's some hard stuff happening in my life. I'm in a good place. Randy, what do you think? I think that Jesus in the hearts today of everybody in the world that believe in him, the one these days will be in heaven with him. Okay. The hope of heaven. The hope that, that we're on our way somewhere. Okay. This is hard. We're on our way. Good, good, good. What else? Karen? I think it's like a broader perspective. You read stories of Christians who are persecuted, and they have that same perspective. Mm-hmm. Somehow, the Holy Spirit is deeper mm-hmm. and more important to them mm. than many of us. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to read about brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering um, for, for being followers of Jesus and not just be be hit with the, the tenacity of their faith, the, the strength of their faith. Cindy. Mm. 
Good, good thoughts. Kind of pushing us in that direction of standing firm in the faith. You know, get back to what you know is true, what you believe, um, regardless of, of the heat that is, that is going on around us. Um, you know, there was, there was a survey about a year ago uh, reported by USA Today. Um, it was done by an organization called snagajob.com. And they had interviewed almost 700 adults. These were folks who were 18 and older who were out of work. And they were asked the following question. Has your layoff been a blessing in disguise? Interesting. Has your layoff been a blessing in disguise? 39% of the respondents said being laid off had been a blessing. 16% said that they feel it will become a blessing. 40% said it was not a blessing. And 4% said they didn't know yet. Can I just go on record as saying if I could respond 39% of the time to the trials in my life and say, yes, those are a blessing, I would feel pretty good about it. I mean, that's pushing towards 50%. And I'm not there. And my suspicion is we can all relate to that. But here's the thing. James is saying in our text that our response needs to be 100% of the time. It is a blessing. We consider it pure joy. He makes an outrageous statement here. And it's an exhortation to the followers of Jesus. And that's how we identify ourselves. Followers of Jesus. That they ought to count trials as an opportunity for rejoicing. And there is something that is resident in our hearts, at least from time to time, that goes, whoa, come on, James, tell me, tell me you're not serious here. Really? And it, and it, and it begs the question, doesn't it? How? How do we do that? There's a very important three-word statement at the beginning of that verse, verse 3, that we read together. Because you know. Because you know. No, we can rejoice in our trials because we know. Because we know what? That the testing of our faith, James says, produces perseverance. And it is important that perseverance be present in our lives so that we can be mature and complete. James says, not lacking anything there is, a, there is a purpose behind that. Because you know. Because you know that they are random? No. Because you know that something is at work producing something of even greater value in your life. And that something is our Father. Our Father is at work shaping and molding and guiding and orchestrating the circumstances of our lives in such a way that they have purpose. And the exhortation is to call us to see that higher purpose. Because we know. How do we know? Back to taking a firm stand in our faith. We know because the scripture teaches us. It comes down to the content of our faith. Choosing to believe the scriptures that tell us That our Father is at work 
even through the most painful and challenging times, that he has a plan. The challenges of life are, are not something to be avoided at all costs, but they are to be embraced, rejoiced in his work, because they are necessary. And they have purpose. Now, let's keep this truth in mind as we look at these next tests of Jesus. Matthew goes on to record for us that the devil took Jesus, led him to a high point of the temple, the highest point in the temple. That would have been in Jerusalem. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. Throw yourself down from here. There are those key words again. If you are the son of God. And like the first test, it's not a question of his identity, but it's a temptation to Jesus that zeroes in on the character of his father. Now, I don't know if I said this last week or not, but I want to plant this truth firmly in your mind. Just, just stick this in there somewhere and hang on to it. The temptations that the enemy brings to us Always, always, always have as their end mocking of God. Temptations always have as their end result, maybe not from us, but from the camps of the enemy, a mocking of God. Temptations, they use us. They happen to us. But ultimately, they're not about us. It's not like Satan targets us because we are so important. You know, it's not like he targets us because he fears us and he's worried and he's got to take us down. He targets us because we are the channels through which he can make a mockery of God. Remember that. When we are tempted, the enemy is striving to bring us to a place where God is mocked. Remember. The scripture does not characterize Satan as simply having a dislike for God. It is an utter disdain and hatred for God. And when he can get God's people to act against the life that God has for them, to live as if there is a better way, then chalk one up for the dark side. Because then he gets to throw that in the face of God and say, see, they really don't believe you. They really don't believe. They really don't trust you in the dark times. Temptation is not about us. It is ultimately about God's reputation through us. And the second temptation that Jesus faced had to do with the plan that his father had for him. From an outsider's perspective, it just didn't make sense at all. The logic, I think, might have gone something like this. The enemy would suggest, you know, surely, as the Son of God, You are special. That is true. You deserve to be well thought of and respected for who you are. The life that your father has planned for you, Jesus, it's really a hard one. In fact, it's going to get you killed. This is not a life that commands respect and impresses people. Jesus, you were born for greatness. Forget the donkey ride into the city. That's stupid. That's no way to announce who you are. Jump off of this temple and make a name for yourself. Do you hear it? Besides, Jesus, it's written in the scripture that that God will take care of you. 
And Jesus' response again, as we saw last week, was to bring Scripture back to bear against the enemy and to respond that it is written that no one, not even, we would say parenthetically, not even God's children should put God to the test. I think one of the difficult, difficult tests that we will face on a daily basis, in addition to those tests that affect our physical being and our material welfare, is the test of living according to a value system that does not make sense to the world in which we live. That value system got Jesus killed. He wasn't the Messiah that made sense. He wasn't the Messiah that Israel was looking for. Did not meet their expectations. God's value system is so contrary to the value system, the culture in which we live. And and we can be sure, my friends, that the enemy knows that. Oh, he does. It's a value system where the least are the greatest. Where the poor are the richest. Where those who have give and sacrifice for the sake of those who have not. Where loss is gain and death is life. What kind of a value system is that? Welcome to life in the kingdom of God. Is it ridiculous? Absolutely. To the onlooker. To the one who is outside of the kingdom, it makes no sense at all. And in our desire and our effort to bring Jesus to life, the enemy will tempt us to speak and act in ways that are normal and acceptable and status quo to our culture and in ways that will also serve our innate concerns for self-preservation and respect. The enemy will whisper again in our ears that it's okay to be God's children and look out for ourselves. It's okay to be God's children and to make a name for ourselves. It's okay to be God's children and do things that will cause people to think well of us. One that is, quite honestly, not so hard. A way, a path that is not so hard and and self-sacrificing. I mean, why not avoid these things if, if it only means a small compromise of kingdom values, right? They don't make sense to our culture anyway. Francis Chan. He's written a book called Crazy Love. I just want to read a few lines from this chapter in uh, what he calls a profile of the obsessed. To be obsessed, he says, is to have the mind excessively preoccupied with a single emotion or topic. He says the idea of holding back certainly doesn't come from Scripture. The Bible teaches us to be consumed with Christ and to faithfully live out his words. The Holy Spirit stirs in us a joy and a peace when we are fixated on Jesus, living by faith and focused on the life that is to come. He says, I sometimes think we assume that if we are nice people, people will know that we are Christians and want to know more about Jesus. But it really doesn't work that way. I have a lot of people who don't know Christ and are really nice people. In fact, they're nicer and more fun to be with, in fact, than a lot of Christians that I know. There has to be more to faith than friendliness, politeness, and even kindness. He says, true faith is loving a person after he has hurt you. True love makes you stand out. We are commanded, he says, to love our enemies and do good to them. Kingdom value system. Who are your enemies? 
or in terms we connect with better, who are the people that you avoid or who avoid you? Who are the people who have hurt you or hurt your friends or hurt your kids? Are you willing to do good to those people to reach out to them? He says people who are obsessed with Jesus give freely and openly without censor. Obsessed people love those who hate them and who can never love them back. He says, God's people are risk takers. Haven't we all prayed the following prayer? Lord, we pray for safety as we travel. We ask that no one gets hurt on this trip. Please keep everyone safe until we return and bring us back safely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The exact wording may vary a bit, but that is the standard prayer that we recite before leaving on mission trips, retreats, vacations, and business trips. We are consumed by safety. Obsessed with it, actually. He says, people who are consumed with Jesus... Obsessed with Jesus aren't consumed with their personal safety and comfort above all else. Obsessed people care more about God's kingdom coming to this earth than their own lives being shielded from pain or distress. People who are obsessed with Jesus live lives that connect them with the poor in some way or another, not just people that they're comfortable with. Obsessed people believe that Jesus talked about money and the poor so often because it really was important to him. Listen to this finally. Obsessed people are more concerned with obeying God than doing what is expected or fulfilling the status quo. A person who is obsessed with Jesus will do things that don't always make sense in terms of success or wealth on this earth. My brothers and sisters, the enemy will tempt us again and again and again to minimize the importance of living out the values of the kingdom of God. Oh, they just don't make sense in our culture. People won't understand. And then instead of doing what James exhorts us in our text, where we can ask our Father for wisdom so that we can have a proper understanding and perspective on the circumstances in which we find ourselves, instead we will be tempted to compromise. And we'll go with what is easy and natural and acceptable in our culture. And let me tell you, the enemy is more than happy to help us reason and to rationalize why that is okay. And when that happens, remember, God is not glorified in His children. He is, in fact, mocked. The third test, Matthew says that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Personally, I think that it's in this test that we see clearly what is really going on in the other tests. This one reveals what is in the heart of of the devil, our enemy, and what is at the root of all the temptations that I think we face. It's a question of worship. It's a question of what we give our lives to. You know, the old English word for worship is worth-ship. We give ourselves to what is worthy, our time and our energy and our resources, to what we deem has worth. And basically, there are two choices. We either give ourselves to the worship of God or we give ourselves to the worship of self. The enemy wanted the son to take his eyes off of the father for just a moment He wanted Jesus for just a moment to exalt himself, to lose sight of the glorious end that would be his as a result of his obedience. Paul says it this way in Philippians. He talked about Jesus' obedience to the Father and his suffering and his death. And he said, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place 
gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and on, under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. I think it's so significant that Jesus' response to this, temp- this temptation was what? Get away from me, Satan. There is only one that I worship, says Jesus. I think this was a big picture moment for Jesus. I really do. The enemy desperately wanted the son to lose his focus for just a moment so that God could be mocked through his son. But I think Jesus looked out upon the world, figuratively speaking. He, he, he looked out and he thought to himself, this is glorious. And it is the father's plan to give it to me, to make me the Lord of heaven and earth when I have completed the mission for which he sent me. Satan had nothing to offer him and he knew that. How about us? In our text, James says it this way. Blessed are those who persevere under trial. Because when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Stood the test to not doubt our father's character, to not doubt his plan for our lives and to pursue Worship of Him only. To put Him at the center of our existence. Now, we don't get to expect a reward like Jesus. That was reserved for Him and Him alone. But there is a reward for His children. Those who stand firm and resist the devil's temptation to doubt the character of God. It's what Randy said earlier. We, we know where we're going. Think about the, uh, the Chilean miners that, that the world watched come to the surface this last week. What is it that kept them alive down there in that hole, half a mile under the earth? The hope that they were going to be rescued. They weren't content to live there. Oh, don't bother. We'll just stay here. This is good. No, there was a, there was a, there was a hope that they would yet get back into the sunshine and the fresh air and the life and the beauty of God's creation and those that they love. It was that idea of there is something better that I am waiting for. That's us. That's the reward that God has in store for those who have stood the test and have persevered. Praise team, why don't you come on up? Let me close with a story as our praise team comes this morning in his book, called Hope is Contagious. Ken Hutcherson shares a moment from his personal life that uh, was in the midst of a struggle that he was having with cancer. He says, you know, you can face anything in life, anything, and have that same inner peace and joy. And when you do, it's contagious. It lifts up everyone else around you. Isn't that the type of person that you want to be? And instead of joining over and over again in the whining about how bad things are, just your presence shows others that, hey, life is still a wonderful gift we should be enjoying. He said, one day I was relaxing in my recliner after having spent five hours in the emergency room the night before. I'll admit I was exhausted. The pain medication wasn't working as well as I would have liked it to. I looked and I saw my family going about their lives as usual. Video games, chores, music, laughter. My wife, Pat, was fixing breakfast. Even our little puppy was settling into a comfortable routine and and enjoying everyone's efforts to spoil him. 
A visitor stopped by to chat. Some friends from church surprised me with a birthday cake. I'd almost forgotten that it was my birthday. So there I sat, surrounded by so much goodness, even as I'm feeling lousy. My favorite cake is staring at me, but I have no appetite. My 11-year-old runs past me, and I don't have enough energy to grab him and wrestle him to the ground like I used to. I'm trying to have a conversation with my guests, but between the short night and powerful pain pills, I can barely stay alert. And you know what I'm thinking? Can you imagine how close I am to being overwhelmed with what is happening to me at that moment? The words practically shouted from inside of me, Isn't God great? What a privilege to be His child. Don't let the enemy cause you to lose sight of that, my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the hard stuff of life, God is good.